the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Today, a look at who really killed Kennedy. 50 years later, stunning new revelations about the JFK assassination. The new book, by the way, newly published by World Net Daily, available through World Net Daily Books. You can also get it through Dr. Corsi's website at jeromecorsi.com. Dr. Corsi, let's begin now to sort of fit all of the pieces together. So we have Jack Kennedy traveling to Dallas on some political business that fateful Friday afternoon in November of 1963. Jack Kennedy is a man that is clearly loved by many in the country, but he's also made a lot of enemies. You made reference earlier on in our conversation to the CIA Cuba, the Bay of Pigs, the fact that at the last minute, Kennedy pulled back air support for the CIA operatives that were storming the beaches there in Cuba in an attempt to try and overthrow Fidel Castro. There were enemies there. We know certainly that in the election of 1960, his father, Joe Kennedy, called in some favors, didn't he? Favors that were tied into people that he had associations with going back to the days of Prohibition. Yes, with the mob. The Kennedys used Sam Giancana in Chicago to tip the election to Jack Kennedy with votes that were in, in wards controlled by the mob. And yet Bobby Kennedy was very aggressively prosecuting the mob as attorney general. The mob felt betrayed. Uh, the mob and the CIA had been working together on assassination plots going back into the World War II period and certainly had worked together again back to Guatemala and worked. The Kennedys were using the mob of the CIA to try to kill Castro. Uh, and so the, the these enemies, these very powerful enemies, including Lyndon Johnson, who the Kennedys were in the process of probably removing from the ticket. A major article, a second article, was going to appear the next week on Lyndon Johnson and what was the Bobby Baker scandal, a scandal that most likely would have tanked LBJ's political career had the article been published. There were a lot of forces here that those very young, popular president had also made some very powerful enemies who uh, could see a future without Jack Kennedy as being much brighter for their particular interests. Joe Kennedy calls in favors. The Chicago mob helps get his son elected. And then within a matter of months of the new administration, um, his brother, Bobby Kennedy, is appointed attorney general. And the first thing on Bobby Kennedy's agenda is to try and root out organized crime. And so there's some major enemies that are being made there, along with the fact that not only was there concerns about the future role, if at all, that Johnson would play within the administration. But then, too, there was some bad blood between the Kennedys and J. Edgar Hoover, too, wasn't there? Absolutely. Um, J. Edgar Hoover had been investigating Jack Kennedy's extramarital affairs. He had files on them. Uh, Jack Kennedy would wanted desperately to remove uh, J. Edgar Hoover from heading the FBI. And Lyndon Johnson, of course, when he got into office, very quickly gave J. Edgar Hoover a lifetime appointment to head the FBI. So 
You know, there were interests that were... Johnson paid back a lot of favors after he got to be president and made sure a Warren Commission was constituted in a way that Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA that Jack Kennedy fired after the Bay of Pigs, was appointed onto the commission. And ironically, apparently, neither the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, nor the president himself, now Lyndon Baines Johnson, really had that much interest in digging any deeper into the questions that continued to linger over who really killed Kennedy. Two things. Uh, apparently, some lawyer in justice is lobbying with the Post because uh, that's where the suggestion came from to, for this presidential commission, which we think would be very bad. Uh, and put it right in the White House. And, uh, we can't be uh, checking up on every uh, every uh, uh, shooting scrape in the country, but sometimes a commission that's not trained hurts more than helps. It's a regular circus, then. That's right. Because it'll be covered by TV and everything. Just like an investigating committee. Exactly. I, I don't have much influence with the Post because I frankly I don't know. read it. <laughs> I, I, I know that. I, know that. I do it like a daily you, worker. You told me that much before. But, but, uh, but I just want your people to know the facts, yeah. and your people can say that, and that kind of negates it. You say, yes, yeah, I get We'll take care of that. Thank you, Mr. President. Ironically, there you have a recorded telephone conversation between President President Johnson and then the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, almost in agreement and, 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 and almost could say collusion in agreeing that something like the Warren Commission would not be a good thing. Getting to the truth of who was responsible for clearly the most critical assassination of the 20th century was not a truth that they wanted to arrive at. Why? Right. And specifically what Johnson and Hoover were talking about was a suggestion by the New York newspaper of an open commission like the Watergate Commission, where you'd have testimony in public and it would be broadcast. Well, that's what Johnson and Hoover didn't want. They didn't want this evidence aired and examined in public. They settled for a closed-door committee that the evidence was sealed, and the committee presented a final report, and these 26 volumes with the evidence so poorly organized and not evaluated or um, examined publicly that the conclusion could be rammed through and accepted before anybody had a chance to read the 26 volumes. In the years since the assassination, post-Warren Commission report, which, which ironically uh, had at its head a sworn enemy of Jack Kennedy, Alan Dulles, um, the conclusion had been drawn that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin. By 1973-74, though, that argument was not holding much water anymore publicly, and so then the House Select Committee on Assassination was called together. Was there anything definitive that came out of the uh, those hearings in terms of changing the ultimate official story as to who really killed Kennedy? Well, yes, I think the the pivotal thing was that they had a they found a a, a recording from a microphone of a police. Uh, motorcycle that had been left on during the assassination, and the uh, committee did acoustical testing of that recording and determined that there were shots fired from the grassy knoll. So the House committee concluded that it was a conspiracy that killed Jack Kennedy, more than one shooter, and that the mob was likely involved. And this was a stunning conclusion, but again, in the sweep of history, uh, the you know, the, the forces that be that want to settle this issue and not re-examine it, the politically correct version has returned to the Warren Commission's conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone gun assassin, even though there is a public committee, constitution, a congressional committee, 
that concluded a conspiracy was in fact involved. There is more evidence, too. In fact, a piece of evidence that had been sort of held quiet from the public, although still frames of this footage had appeared in Life magazine in the years following the assassination, a piece of home film taken by one Abraham Zapruder. I got out in, uh, about a half hour earlier and get to a good spot to shoot some pictures. And I found a spot, one of these uh, concrete blocks that I have down near that park near the underpass. And I got on top there, there was another girl from my office, she was right behind me. And as I was shooting, as the president was coming down from Houston Street making his turn, it was about a halfway down there, I had a shot. And he slumped to the side, like this. Then I had another shot or two, I couldn't say it was one or two. And I saw his head practically open up, all blood and everything, and I kept on shooting. That's about all. I'm just sick, I can't. I think that pretty well expresses the entire feelings of the whole world. Let's go back to Daly Plaza, Parkland Hospital, and the so-called magic bullet theory. Now, we have the governor of Texas, John Connolly, has been wounded in the shoulder, wounded in the wrist, and wounded in the knee. We have the president who has been shot in the throat, shot in the back of the head. We have one bullet accounted for. One bullet that appears on a stretcher in virtually pristine condition, which ballistics today would suggest is no way could have passed through that much tissue, that much bone, that much cartilage, and come out in the condition that it did. Walk us through the analysis. You've made reference, Dr. Corsi, to the acoustic evidence. We've just heard Abraham Zapruder talk about the film that he shot, some critical key frames in that film that help us to piece together more of the story. What happened? Well, the, the key point point is that there were only three shots that could have been fired in the time frame if Oswald was the lone gun assassin. And when the committee realized one shot missed, that meant either there were four shots or one shot had to hit both Kennedy and John Connolly, which is a single bullet theory. And they found this pristine bullet on a stretcher in the hospital that neither Kennedy or Connolly had been on that stretcher. Hmm. And they said that was the bullet that did all the damage. Now, Connolly had a broken rib. He had wrist a broken wrist as well as a rib. Uh, the bone would have certainly deformed the bullet. That's the argument. And secondly, the back wound in Jack Kennedy, which the single bullet theory says the bullet entered in the back, went through neck and then exited to hit John Connolly. Well, the problem is that the back wound only went in about a quarter of an inch into Jack Kennedy's back. And even at the autopsy, there was no tracing of any route from the back wound to the neck wound, where it was supposed to have exited. And at Parkland Hospital, the neck wound was viewed as an entrance wound. An entrance wound would have also meant two shooters because the Texas School Book Depository, where Lee Harvey Oswald was supposed to have been, shooting from the sixth floor, was behind Jack Kennedy when the shooting started. Without giving away the totality of the book, and it really is a page-turner, and I want to urge listeners, particularly those of us that grew up during the era or recognize the critical turning point that took place in America. I mean, I think that there's ever a time when there was a demarcation of when we lost our quote-unquote innocence to suggest that we ever even had it. Certainly, the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy in November of 1963 seems to be that turning point. The book, again, Who Really Killed Kennedy, available at Book 
bookstores throughout the Bay Area, also through Dr. Corsi's website at jeromecorsi.com. But again, Dr. Corsi, without giving away too much information, walk us through, if you would, kind of your conclusion. Fit all the pieces together for us in a moment, and then folks can take advantage of the detail of which you go to in the book to help us understand all of this better. Well, I think it's, clearly I believe there was a conspiracy. The, I think the evidence of a shooter, probably from the grassy knoll, is, uh, is compelling. The testimony of people who were witnesses, an examination of the ballistics. I start with Parkland Hospital, where the doctors all said that both the throat wound and the head wound were shot from the front. Uh, the head wound was viewed as a gaping uh, hole in the back of the head. Uh, the doctors knew what they were looking at. These were highly qualified physicians. Parkland was a world-class facility even in the 60s. It was a very well-known and recognized hospital. The doctors were experienced with gunshot wounds. Uh, if, they, if, there shooters, if there was a shooter from the front, it was multiple shooters. I'd say that the CIA uh, was involved. And with the hearings and the material that's come out in the last 50 years, the research, the you know, the five million pages of documents now available in National Archives, many of which I've looked through myself, you know, there's ample evidence of CIA mob involvement in a conspiracy to kill Jack Kennedy and the framing of Lee Harvey Oswald and the commission, the Warren Commission, conducting really a cover-up and not a true investigation, making the facts fit a predetermined conclusion. All of these things uh, make it highly suspect that Lee Harvey Oswald was the single gun shooter. In fact, I think the evidence increasingly is that Lee Harvey Oswald was exactly what he said he was, a government agent who was a patsy, didn't shoot anyone, and was framed. Perhaps 50 years later, we finally have the truth, answering the question, who really killed Kennedy? Again, the new book available through WorldNet Daily, also through Dr. Corsi's website at JeromeCorsi.com. Who Really Killed Kennedy? Fifty years later, stunning new revelations about the JFK assassination. Dr. Corsi, we appreciate so much the time, your hard effort, and all the research and the insights you've offered today. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Imagine this. America Today as we speak has $100 billion in student loan debt, $90 billion outstanding in automobile loans. You look at some of the prices coming out of Detroit and elsewhere, not surprised. $50 billion in credit card debt. And consumer debt overall, this is unsecured debt, $3.2 trillion. I guess it's no surprise, therefore, that 65% of divorce decrees in the United States today are because of finances. At the end of the day, irresponsible money management is something that we all learn. Well, if that be the case, then how can we have the talk, the conversation with our children so that we learn them properly when it comes to Money management. Joining me now is Scott and Bethany Palmer, authors of the five money conversations to have with your kids at every age and stage. And Scott and Bethany, welcome to both of you. Well, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Now, I'm curious with your own family. Um, what prompted you to decide, and at what age, that this was a conversation you needed to have with the kids? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, for the really last 10 years, Bethany and I have been working with couples all over the world when it comes to love and money and the conversations that we need to have as couples. And we were constantly getting asked, well, how do we talk to our kids about this? Um, we're actually the creators of something called the five money personalities. And we have a pretty amazing assessment online for individuals and couples to take to be able to understand who they are and what their money personalities are. And so we were being constantly asked, how do we deal with our kids and how do we deal with our kids? So that put us on a journey to really figure out and try to understand what what we're dealing with. We have currently a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, so or 11-year-old. So we're in the middle of this whole parent thing. And, and what we found in kind of the way that we made our book really applicable to parents is that we found that every age is a little different. So really... Starting at age five, we need to start having conversations with our kids. And what we found between the ages of five and 12 is when kids become entitled. Then you jump into the teenage years. And between 13 and 17 is when we can, and a lot do, teach their kids to be materialistic. And then what we found 18 and beyond, 18 to 25, but you know we've got literally 35-year-olds still living in mom and dad's basement, is that 18 to 25 is when they become what we call financially dependent. And so we're dealing with three different age groups. We're dealing with different conversations that need to take place in those age, in those different ages because we're really addressing three different major issues which every parent is facing. Yeah, and this seems to be, Bethany, so obvious in the sense that I think all parents recognize early on that their child's personalities are, are shaped and, and molded. Part of that is a product of environment and their own personalities and so forth. So if their overall personality is developed at such an early age, why not their personality, quote unquote, related to money or how they how they grow up viewing money, relating to money and, and uh, the role that money p- plays in their lives? Well, it's interesting. God talks about money more than just about any other subject in the Bible because he knew how much it was going to impact us every day. A lot of times people think money just impacts us on our financial planning, making sure we have our insurance and retirement, investments and taxes and estate planning all taken care of. Those are all very important. But what the truth of the matter is, is you have everyday decisions that you have to make very quickly when it comes to money. Simple things like, are you going to go out to eat? Uh, or or bag or brown bag your lunch? Are you going to go to and get an expensive cup of coffee or are you going to brew it at home? And our children are going to be and are starting at very young ages dealing with the same exact thing. And so what, has, what we have found is that it can be such an encouragement to children to really understand their perspective of money, which we have we can talk about here and flesh this out a little bit, we can, we say with our whole heart, we know that God made our money personalities. Are they impacted by our parents? Yes, but but the way we look at money, and we have some examples we can share here in a little bit, but with that being said, we as parents better understand our own children's two money personalities, and then with that in mind, how encouraging it is to have these conversations. Because everybody knows what kind of conversations maybe you should have, but how do you have them in a way that your children will hear them and not re- rebel against them? Well, and maybe even a bigger sort of preliminary question for parents, and this, uh, Scott, I imagine is a difficult one for, well, perhaps not all parents, certainly a good percentage of them based on the statistics I cited a moment ago, and that is, you know, every parent is nervous about the time coming when they have to have the talk. Now, usually that's birds and the bees. The talk. Yeah, and, and 
and, and the birds and the bees talk, I would imagine for some parents, might even come easier. And I, and I, I phrase it that way, Scott, for this reason. Having the conversation with your children about money, their money personality, their relationship to money, and what that's going to look like when they move into their adult life, uh, doesn't it require some introspection in terms of, of the parent getting a handle on their own money personality? Because let's face it, there are spenders and there are savers, and you walk through all of these different money personalities. Well, what happens when you're a parent trying to sit down with um, your child and lecture he or she on what it means to be a saver when, in fact, the one doing the lecturing is a dyed-in-the-wool, card-certified spender. Well, I mean, that, that is a great point because what, what often happens is we naturally try to make our kids like our money personality is. And so if you're, by chance, let's say maybe you're a, uh, you're a primary, we have two money personalities, but let's say you're a primary saver and your kid is a primary spender. You're always going to be making comments like, you know, well, that money just burns a hole in your pocket within a matter of minutes, or you need to have a savings plan. And part of what we tried to do with our book was say, hey, how do you talk when your money personalities are different than your kids? And, and even more importantly, how do you talk to your kids when maybe you've made some money mistakes? Because we've all made money mistakes, but I think everybody listening would agree those are great learning opportunities, too, for our kids. If we can say, hey, listen, this is what your mom and I did. Ended up being a bad, a bad decision that we made, but this is how we corrected it, and this is how we got out of it. Because when you start having those conversations, and when you start not only speaking to their money personality, but also being vulnerable with where you've succeeded and where you failed, it, that's where really the communication can begin. And I think often what happens is we think as parents we're supposed to just you know, give this huge amount of wisdom to our children and they're just going to look at us in awe and be like, wow, mom and dad really have all this money stuff figured out. It's not going to happen. Let me give you an example. Um, my, I have a son who is a primary spender. And so we don't use... We don't even use words like um, save money. We have a future spending plan set up for him. That's the kind of language that he is going to understand. And, you know, I think of um, my relationship with my mom, and we could not be a more opposite side of the spectrum. I'm a primary spender and secondary risk taker. So I'm kind of on that spender risk taker side. She is on the totally other side of the spectrum. She's a saver security seeker. And we butted heads so much growing up because those little money decisions would come up. Like, perfect example, I was a competitive swimmer, nationally ranked swimmer. Swimming was a big part of my life. And my coach told me that I needed to get this new swimsuit. And my mom gave me, I mean, it was expensive, and my mom just gave me the biggest, made the biggest deal out of that. It really, in retrospect, wasn't that much money, but to her it was because she's a saver and savers, I mean, that you can never save enough money for a saver. And so really it made me feel like I wasn't worth buying that swimsuit. Mm. So there's a lot of, we, cannot, we can be unintentional consequences of not understanding your child's money personalities is you are putting them down, squelching them of who they are and how they've been uniquely made, and you don't even know it. And that's where the challenge is, is... You know, parents think, oh, well, I need to teach them this or that. But if you're teaching them in a way that they can hear it, that they can relate to it, that it makes sense to them because of the way that they were uniquely made and the way that they perceive money. You know, we all, we all, not all of us have a real healthy relationship when it even comes to money. 
You know, money is something that, that we work with and we talk about, like I said, a little bit every single day. And if we don't have ourselves figured out and then we don't understand our children, we're do, like I said, unintended consequences are happening and really impacting our, our relationships with our children. On today's edition of Lifeline, a look at the five money conversations to have with your kids at every age and every stage. By the way, we've got four complimentary copies of the book we're going to be giving out here coming up just momentarily. Meanwhile, we'll take a pause, get you updated on some traffic. When we come back, if it's true that opposites attract, how problematic can that be for not only children, but eventually when they grow up to be adults in married life. We'll get to that part of the equation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Scott and Bethany Palmer with us today. They're known as the Money Couple. We're talking about their latest book, The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. And let's talk about this notion of opposites attract. We always hear that when it comes to relationships. And I'm wondering how problematic is that certainly later in life when, you know, as you were suggesting before the break, Bethany, uh, boy, you get a husband and wife team together and one is the spender risk taker combination. The other is the saver security saker. Wow. Wow, that can really <laughs> create quite a firestorm. But you're I, not kidding. And, oh. and I would imagine the earlier in life the kids recognize who they are, what their personality looks like, the easier it will be later in life, relationally speaking, to deal with all that. You know, it is so true. You know, we always say, Scott and I always say, opposites attract, but then you get married and opposites attack. Mm. And the problem is when the money conversations come up or, or decisions that you need to make about money, money um, that decisions that you need to make that involve money, that's where the problems happen. And then they, the conflict happens all the time. The more opposite you are, the more challenges you're going to have. And you are so correct. If you can understand this as a young child, it's so fun. Our, our children starting at age seven is when they started to really understand what their money personalities and say things to us like, like, Mom, you're a risk taker, so don't you want to do that? You know, it's amazing to us how at such young age how kids can learn these things and think about how the next generation of marriages, how much healthier they can be because they understand this. Now, we're not saying that you can't marry your opposite, because most of the time we're attracted to it. As a matter of fact, oftentimes it makes you a better person. It's a more exciting relationship. The, the thing is, though, is if you realize this, and then when those challenges come up, you know where they're coming from, and you're not putting the person down, you're, you're, you're trying to deal and understand their many personalities. Now, now, some listening right now might be thinking, well, this, this makes sense, okay, so it, there's not a prohibition against it, but probably life would be easier if instead of marrying the opposite, we married the equal. But I have to wonder, Scott, if that is not, we're out with problems as well. For example, if you get two spender risk takers together, my goodness, that's <laughs> that's going to mean there's never any money in the house, or that's right. That's right. They, they will instantly help that three point trillion dollars. Yes, in, it in will. Their debt. So yeah, yep, and, and that's right. that's a great point mm -hmm. that um, we need to make. We we do a lot of uh, premarital counseling with couples, and sometimes they'll take the money personality assessment. And they'll be like, we have four money personalities. Are we going to survive? And we say, absolutely, because really those differences can really become your strengths inside your relationship. The spender, if they're married to a saver, they both have really positive points 
of their money personality and really negative points of their money personality. But if they can get those money personalities in balance, if they can learn, okay, this is why and how I personally deal with money, and here's my relationship with money, oh, and now I have this other person, and they have a different relationship with money, so not only are they getting themselves in check, but they're also understanding who their spouses are, that's how they can really have a really healthy, what we call a money healthy relationship. And what we find is that couples that get married that have the same money personalities are much, are much more less likely to argue. Bethany and I's primary money personalities are both spenders. So if she goes and spends money, uh, we don't usually have an argument about that or tension. Where our tension hits is that she's a risk taker and I'm a security seeker. Secondarily. Secondarily. So we have the opportunity. That's where we have conflicts. And so it's just really important to know that uh, what those money personalities are because your kids are going to be modeled how you communicate about money. And that's really important to understand. The kids are watching everything. We've had about 60,000 people take this assessment online. And of that 60,000, the, the percentage of married couples that took it, 80% of those had an opposite dynamic in their relationship. So 80% of the married couples that we surveyed had a, a different opposite money personality. So you, you talk about a, a 65% divorce rate. Actually, what we found is statistically the divorce rate is between 48 and 55%, depending on who you're using. But 70% of all divorces, the number one reason that was listed was conflicts over money. And so when we That's found something. that 80% of, of couples were married to their money opposite, we weren't surprised at all mm -mm. with that 70%. So here's the great thing. Here's the encouraging thing. The encouraging thing is that you can succeed in a relationship. That once you understand who you are, you've got a much better chance of understanding who your spouse is. And once you have a much better chance of understanding how your spouse is, then you can get on the same page and you can have an amazing family that understands that open communication about money is good. Mom and dad don't always see eye to eye about money, but they know how to communicate about it, and then your kids can trust you. And this yeah, also so means that we have a greater degree of responsibility, don't we, as parents, in the sense that, you know, we're typically thinking about providing them with a good moral foundation. We take them to church. We make sure that they get a decent education, prepare them for life, things of that sort. But it makes the money talk, apparently, Scott, all that more important, because what you're really doing is setting a, a foundation, not only for that child's economic health and well-being later on in life, but their marital health and well-being as well. So now all of a sudden, conversations over um, allowances, for example, and do you get it or do you earn it, that suddenly becomes a very important discussion. Absolutely. And, and what we find is, uh, what we have found is that often parents exclude their, their conversations um, about allowance. So what you've really got really to figure out is your kid's money personality so that you have so that, that you have the opportunity to speak into them. So, for instance, my 11-year-old um, is a primary spender. And at about the age of, of um, eight, what we decided we would do as a family with allowances, really from five to eight, five to nine, we, didn't, uh, we gave them an allowance, and now they earn their money. And so the cool thing that we created for, for parents, because we were like kind of trying to figure out, okay, how's the best way to make... A, a decision or figure out how who our kids money personalities are so what we did was we started looking at all these different age groups we started coming up with questions and we started watching the kids to help parents figure out how to assess their children when it came to their money personalities so like a big one was Easter candy we watched how kids interacted with their Easter candy some saved it some consumed it quickly some traded it 
some had a plan on their consumption, and some gave it to their friends. Each of those ways of dealing with candy is a reflection of their money personality. So what we did um, with the five conversations to have with your kids at every age and stage was we put a code on the back of the book, and we actually created a money personality assessment from 5 to 12. We created a separate money personality assessment for 13 to 18, and we created another money personality assessment for 18 and beyond. And so parents can actually buy the book, scratch off the foil um, on the back of the book, and you get five assessments per book, five free assessments per purchase of the book. So you can actually sit down with your kids, take, watch them take the assessment. Five to 12-year-olds need a little bit more directions. The teenagers take the ball and run. No problem. And 18 and beyond take the ball and run. And it will actually give you their money personalities. Then what you can do is you can look at the, the conversations that we outline in the book. Okay, so let's talk about allowance. How do you talk about allowance to a spender? How do you talk about allowance to a saver? How about a risk taker? How about a flyer? How about a security seeker? So we actually help parents based on the kids' money personalities talk about things like allowance, extracurricular activities. Um, for our teenagers, yeah, the give me's for the little ones. For our teenagers, technology, I mean, the peer pressure behind having the perfect clothes having the perfect technology, being in every extracurricular activity that you can possibly come up with. So we actually help parents talk to their kids, but you're actually speaking the child's language. And, and you know what I love about this is there, there, there's a stroke, a stroke of genius here, uh, <laughs> Bethany and Scott, there really is, because parents today are beginning to realize, for example, in the arena of discipline, right. uh, that it needs to be unique to the child's personality. Some yeah. parents understand you have a child and simply sending them to bed without dinner does not yeah. get the message through. Right. And yet another child with whom you discipline by saying, I'm taking away the car keys, no, you can't go to the movies this weekend, or we're locking up your video game, may work for some children, may not work for others. Absolutely. So this, this, this one-size-fits-all approach that we've tried to do when it comes to parenting, particularly as it relates to money, I think the clear results of how, how much it's not working is in the divorce rates that we spoke of earlier. It's in the amount of consumer indebtedness that we have and the manner in which not only we we manage money as a people, but listen, 17 heading toward $18 trillion debt, I want to tell you something there, too. And, you know, let's let's talk after the break about the whole issue, for example, of how we handle at the earliest ages your allowance. Now, when I was growing up, my dad had a bit of a philosophy when it came to allowance. Um, he said that uh, he was going to take sort of a, an approach that would help me hopefully someday grow up to be a Roosevelt Democrat. And by that, he meant that you got money from the government, but you had to work for it. That's as opposed to a Johnson Democrat, where you get money from the government, you're entitled to it. We'll take a time out, talk a bit more about the whole issue of money personalities and how to have those five money conversations with your kids. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Scott and Bethany Palmer with us tonight. They are The Money Couple, the new book, Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Every Stage. We're talking about, quite frankly, how to prevent, in large part, a huge disaster once they get older adults, whether it be an impact on their finances or ultimately on their marriage, understanding your child's unique money personality and then being able to educate your child based on that personality is really the key of what we're speaking about. About today, and, and one of the ways in which, of course, that can and should be done is this whole matter of Bethany and Scott of the way we teach our kids the value of money through their 
allowance. Now, yeah. as I mentioned, Dad had the belief that he wanted me to be a Roosevelt Democrat. He thought that it was okay if I got money from him, the government, as he formed it. Uh, but I had to work for it. And, of course, the issue of entitlement today is a major problem in our society. So how do we go about managing the whole issue of allowances based on our child's unique money personality? Well, that's a really great question. And let's just start with just the overall approach and what we're trying to accomplish. What we're trying to accomplish is having our children understand the basic concepts of, of money, how much it's worth, and how to... and where to spend it or save it. And so one of the things that we've discovered is that if you teach children at a very young age, I mean, you can start as as young as three, and you just give them $3 a week. They don't have to work for it yet. You just give them $3 a week. And with these $3, they have to put, they have three bins, if you will, $1 in to save, $1 in to spend, and one dollar into give, and giving is to charity or your church. And what happens is you want to cha- train those neurons, if you will, those giving neurons and those saving neurons and those spending neurons, and you want to train them at a very young age that that money is something that you do something with and you need to be intentional with it. So again, at a very young age, not connected with chores, just you just give it to them. Again, to train that a third, a third, a third. Now, once they turn, like right around eight or nine, it depends on the child and how mature they are, now what you do is they start earning it. And the way that they earn it, and this is where as parents, you have to sit down and make a list of things that are above and beyond normal everyday chores. I don't know about you, but I think there are some, a lot of things that you do around your household that's just part of being a family. I mean, you don't get paid for it. It's just, you, you got a roof over your head. This is what we do as a family to keep this house running. But if you're creative as a parent, you know, maybe it's cleaning out a pond or it's um, cleaning up a walkway or it's pulling, you know, excessive amounts of weeds or I don't know, you can just be very creative as parents and you come up with additional activities and things that they do that now they earn that money. A great example is um, our child, we had something that that he was doing and we told him that this particular job was gonna be worth $5. Well, I mean $10, but you know what? He didn't work hard. And you know, he's getting into those teenage years and starting to just kind of mosey around and go real slow. And I'm like, nope, sorry, all right. Pay just got docked, five bucks. And he's like, what? And it's like, so you're using money to show they're earning money. They're not just getting it. They're earning it. But here's the wonderful thing. Now they've earned it, but you know what their first reaction is? Because you train those neurons, they take any money they earn, and they put a third in to spend, a third in to give, and a third in to save. Because those neurons have been trained. Then once they start to earn money through their jobs, when they start to get to be 16, you know, 17, 18, they get that money and they start doing that same thing because that's just what's ingrained in them. So taking it in ages and stages and not being, there's so many parents that we see, well, I didn't have to, I had to work for any money that I got. And, you know, just having these, un, you know, putting our childhood into it, listen, Parenting has changed. Times have changed. There's so much more that our children can buy now than they used to be able to. And if we aren't intentional with this and using and inside of our home being the training ground for this, we're going to raise a whole nother generation that doesn't understand money. 
And this is absolutely key and crucial. So we are just excited to see so many parents applying this approach and just seeing great results, great results. And let's say you start late. Let's say if you have a 15-year-old and you haven't done any money management, you haven't talked about money at all, and da-da-da-da. You know what? It is never too late to start. And if you want to tell your 15-year-old, here's three bucks, and you're going to take a third, they'll be perfectly happy to take it. But you'll be, again, training that, those neurons to save, spend, and give. We appreciate the insights today, and I, I think for parents, getting this conversation started, uh, Bethany, is critically important. And, and again, part of this is going to go back to the heart of not just wanting to be good parents and give our children the proper foundation necessary to be not only economically successful, but as we've suggested today, relationally successful as they grow up in life. I guess then that leads to the other important question, and that is, uh, where do we start? Uh, how, how do we go about getting this dialogue started, understanding their personalities. And, you know, if you have six kids, you may wind up with an an interesting combination of different money personalities there. And then, of course, at the same time, you know, teaching our kids things like the art of compromise and and the dangers of entitlement and the connection between risk and reward. How do we start this conversation, Scott? Yeah, well, the the first thing is to go get the book (laughs) because the book out just outlines everything so easy for parents. We did not want this to be a complicated hyper involved book we wanted to be able to have parents say oh, okay i've got a i've got an eight-year-old and i have a 17 year old and to be able to bounce around the book and really use it as a resource the great thing about the book is that when you get the book you can scratch off the code and back and it gives you those five different money personality assessments that you can have your kids take right away so it knowledge 10 minutes yeah it's not 10 minutes long. at the most um knowledge is power and if we can just take some time to get to know our kids we're going to be able to have the conversations that they're going to be able to hear. So I'd say, you know, you can get the book at major booksellers. Um, it's in Christian bookstores all over the place, and it's called The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. If parents want to know what their money personalities are, they can go to themoneycouple.com, and they can take that assessment for free. Now, that assessment is only going to be for free for about another two or three weeks um, before we start charging for that assessment. But if parents want to know who they are so that they can understand where maybe they're seeing differently uh, than their kids are when it comes to money, we've still got that at themoneycouple.com. It's a free assessment. It'll take you 10 minutes, and you can you know, buy, the, buy the five money conversations to have with your kids right there as well. Excellent. And the book is available through, I guess, the usual suspects, Amazon, and directly through your website as well. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And like I said, it's in most, in most Christian bookstores as well. Excellent. Again, the book is called simply Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Every Stage and uh, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through their website at themoneycouple.com. That's themoneycouple.com. And our thanks to Scott and Bethany Palmer for being with us tonight and offering those insights. The book, by the way, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. A W Publishing is actually the cover, but uh, Thomas Nelson is the, is the main publisher. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. 
Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.